Thank you for listening to the Resources for Integrated Care podcast series supporting the preventive health needs of duly eligible women with disability. This podcast was recorded as part of a live event held on May 12, 2021. In this podcast, Sarah Triano, Senior Director at Centene Corporation, discusses the Centene Provider Accessibility Initiative and other Centene efforts to address health disparities among duly eligible women with disability. I want to start first by just thanking Gretchen, Toby, the Medicare Medicaid Coordination Office, and Porvi, Jennifer, the whole RIC and Lewin team for inviting me to participate um, on a panel and speak on a topic that is very near and dear to me, both professionally and personally, as a woman with a disability myself. In addition to a mental health disability, I was born with a hereditary and incurable immune system disorder and had an immunologist tell me when I was 16 that I should take birth control so I wouldn't quote, contaminate the gene pool. So although I'm not duly eligible and have tremendous privilege as a cisgender woman with a hidden disability, access to preventive care, health care for women with disabilities is something I definitely identify with and have lots of very strong opinions on. Today I want to tell you just a little bit about the work we've been doing at Centene in this space and then end by sharing some specific challenges and next steps for Centene but also for CMS, states, advocates, and other health plans that I believe could significantly increase access to preventive health care for women with disabilities. Centene is the nation's largest Medicaid managed care and long-term services and supports organization, serving over 1 million duly eligible individuals across 35 states. But before I tell you about one of our specific programs, the Provider Accessibility Initiative, I'd like to share just a quick story. In a prior life, I was the executive director of a Center for Independent Living in California, and my board chair was a fantastic advocate named Cynthia Waddell. In 2012, Cynthia was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and she asked me to go with her to her first MRI, and I'll never forget the look on the MRI tech faces when we walked in, and they realized, oh, she's deaf. And they had absolutely no clue how to do an MRI on someone who is deaf. I mean, think about it. You're in there. There's that really loud noise. They're saying to you, hold your breath. Now breathe. You know, how do you do that with somebody who's deaf? And unfortunately, by the time they finally figured it out months later, Cynthia's brain tumor was inoperable and she had passed away. But, I mean, I'm not telling you anything you probably don't already know, either through personal experience like Amy's or through a friend or family member who uses a wheelchair and can't remember the last time they were weighed at a doctor's office or who needed materials in accessible formats at a doctor's office and never got them or went for years without dental care because the dental offices had no idea how to effectively serve someone with an intellectual or developmental disability. So as a woman with a disability myself, I'm very, very proud to work for a company that finds that situation unacceptable and decided in 2017 to take a leadership role in addressing it, not because there's some requirement that says we have to, but because it's the right thing to do, plain and simple, but also because Centene, we have a National Disability Advisory Council and duly eligible beneficiaries across the country in our member advisory committees told us that we should. So in partnership with the National Council on Independent Living, NICL, and NICL's Rockstar Network of Centers for Independent Living, for the last three and a half years, we've been actively working to increase the percentage of our providers across the nation that meet minimum federal and state disability access standards 
so that our members with disabilities and their companions with disabilities, say a parent of a child who has a disability, have equal access to quality health care and services that are physically and programmatically accessible. So how are we doing that? First and foremost, we set an expectation in 2017 that if you want to do business with Centene, you better be or quickly become accessible to people with disabilities. So we routinely ask all 1,091,000 of our providers with brick-and-mortar locations across the country to ask a standard set of questions about their disability access that are the same in every state. But we don't just take their word for it that they're accessible, right? Because a lot of them don't even know what accessibility really means. So local Center for Independent Living staff have trained our health plan staff on how to conduct on-site accessibility site reviews of the provider's offices to verify their level of accessibility. But, you know, it's not enough to just verify that a doctor's office is inaccessible and then put that in our provider directory. That doesn't help our member who needs an accessible mammogram. You know, one of the reasons that most providers give for not making their offices accessible to people with disabilities is cost. And when I was a SIL director, I used to think that was just kind of a poor excuse. But after working in a Medicaid managed care company for many years now, I've seen firsthand that for many smaller mom and pop Medicaid providers, it's a very real barrier. Some of them are struggling financially just to keep their doors open. And as the largest Medicaid and one of the largest dual-serving health plans in the country, you know, we believe we have a responsibility and an obligation to help those providers remove that financial barrier to disability compliance so that our members with disabilities have equal access to the same health care and services as everyone else. So in 2017, we created a national barrier removal fund that providers can apply to for money to remove disability access barriers at their office, whether they be physical barriers or programmatic. To date, over $1.3 million have gone out to 152 provider offices in nine states to remove disability access barriers, along with countless hours of technical assistance from NICL, the local cells, and our health plans. And among those grants have been several specifically targeted to women with disabilities. So we helped install a digital enunciator that announces the floors in the elevator at the Institute for Women's Health in Texas. We did a complete women's restroom remodel at an internal medicine office in Florida. And we provided 91 accessible OBGYN tables in all nine states where we've implemented this initiative so far. And I'll never forget, you know, one of the first calls I got after we launched the initiative from a nurse at a women's clinic when her office received the accessible exam table. She was so happy because up till that point, they had been doing what Dr. Harris mentioned, giving pelvic exams and pap smears to women in wheelchairs while they were sitting in their wheelchairs. Yeah, ouch. I mean, think, think that might have some impact on how many women actually schedule an appointment for a pelvic or pap smear. So one of the grants was also made to a residential addiction treatment facility in Illinois that was temporarily housing the women and men in the same wing of the building because the women's ward was not accessible and the state had to shut it down. We added a ramp and the women's ward was successfully reopened. And we were thrilled when a mental health office in Indiana asked for funding to install a fully accessible diaper changing station in their women's bathroom. So we know intuitively that these grants we're providing are improving the health outcomes of duly eligible women with disabilities, but unfortunately, all attempts to prove that by securing funding from the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research with three different university centers on disability have been unsuccessful so far. 
So in addition to that provider accessibility, several other things our long-term services and supports and Medicare Medicaid plans across the country are doing to increase access to preventative care for duly eligible women with disabilities include um, they make extra payments to OBGYN providers for practice visits so that women with intellectual, developmental, or other types of disabilities, too, can visit the office before their actual appointment, meet the staff, see and touch the tools that will be used on them in their exams to really reduce their anxiety and fear. We also have partnerships with local centers for independent living and DD providers to proactively distribute HPV immunization information to women with physical and developmental disabilities. We require that all staff go through biannual trauma-informed care training, which not entirely, but does disproportionately impact women. And every month, our quality improvement teams identify women with gaps in breast and cervical cancer screenings and then proactively work with our care management teams to contact those women and help them address any barriers that they might have to getting those important screenings that Amy was talking about, like actually scheduling the appointment, scheduling accessible transportation, getting an ASL interpreter. You know, since the pandemic started, we've seen an increase in the number of women with disabilities that have flat out refused to schedule preventative screenings because the threat of going to a doctor's office and contracting the COVID virus is actually greater to them than the threat of getting breast or cervical cancer. So to address that, our plan in California, HealthNet, has done things like paid for home provider visits and screenings and in-home test kits. But the fear of having someone unknown even come into their home is still very real. And as my experience when I was 16 demonstrates, and as Dr. Mitra pointed out, there's a strong societal assumption that women with disabilities can't have children, and if we can, we shouldn't. But Superior Health Plan in Texas is directly confronting that stereotype by proactively offering care coordination assistance with perinatal postpartum family planning to four duly eligible women in our Medicare and Medicaid plan. If I had to pick the greatest barrier for health plans today in serving duly eligible women with disabilities, I would say it's data, or lack thereof. In fact, in 2017, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities released a report on the sexual and reproductive rights of women and girls with disabilities and cited the lack of data and information on women and girls with disabilities as the main barrier to implementation of gender responsive and disability inclusive strategies worldwide. So let me give you just one example of this problem. So when health plans get eligibility data from state Medicaid agencies through what's called the 834 file, it always lists certain demographic information for our members, like name, address, date of birth, age, sex. If it includes language or race, and that's a big if, nine times out of 10, it's inaccurate. And it never includes disability because a majority of state Medicaid eligibility applications don't ask Medicaid applicants if they have a disability. So the only way health plans really know the disability status of our members is, number one, if we ask them, which we do, but that takes time, a long time, particularly if the contact information in the 834 was inaccurate, which it usually is. So if we want to identify our members with disabilities quickly, we have to get at it through waiver eligibility, rate cells, or claims. But even those methods are imperfect because you can have a member who is, say, for example, deaf who won't show up in any of those sources unless you try to piece together certain diagnostic codes. 
And even then, there isn't like a specific diagnosis code for deaf or blind. We have to take medically-based diagnostic codes like macular degeneration and retinitis pigmentosa and piece them together to get to the members who are blind. I mean, even with developmental disability, you can track the population in the IDD waivers, but what about people with developmental disabilities who don't receive waiver services and who have claims that are like for an ear infection or stomach flu? So on this slide, I've listed the percentage of duly eligible women in Centene's Medicare Medicaid plans with women representing the highest percentage than men in all six states. And I also have here two graphs showing the COVID mortality rate among all six of our MMPs combined, stratified by sex, setting, and age, with duly eligible women and men over 65 in nursing facilities having the highest COVID mortality rate. But if I want to get more granular than that and get a breakdown of how many of those women over 65 in nursing facilities have a physical, cognitive, developmental, or sensory disability, I can't do it, or at least not easily and without great expense. It's unbelievable. I mean, if you ask this same question in an educational or employment context, there's no problem. Tell me the number of kids that have developmental disabilities. Boom, you got it. Ask it in healthcare, forget it. So what do health plans need to better meet the preventative health care needs of duly eligible women with disabilities? We need data. We need state Medicaid agencies to ask about disability on their eligibility applications using something like the American Community Survey Disability Question. And then we need them to share that with us. <laughs> Number two, and I'm going a little out of, bit out of order here, we need NIDLR to fund evaluations of efforts like the Provider Accessibility Initiative so we can prove that providing greater access to preventative health care for duly eligible women with disabilities has an impact, not only on the beneficiary health, but also on larger systems outcomes and costs. Number three, we need more women with disabilities in the health professions. While we can certainly educate providers like mine who told me I would contaminate the gene pool, I'd much rather invest our nation's time and resources into helping women with disabilities become doctors who can then change the medical model from the inside out. And last, but certainly not least, number four, yes, we are seeing COVID-specific racial and gender disparities in testing, hospitalization, mortality, vaccination, but all of these things are really just a microcosm of the systemic racism and sexism evident throughout our health systems, particularly for duly eligible women with disabilities. And nowhere is that more apparent than in the widespread practice that Dr. Mitra mentioned of sterilizing women of color with developmental disabilities. Now, forced sterilization of women of color in ICE facilities and prisons has been in the news lately, right? But what most, most people don't know is that women with developmental disabilities have been and continue to be sterilized by their guardians at a rate three times that of the general population, all under the guise of preventive health care to prevent them basically from menstruating, getting pregnant, and yes, contaminating the gene pool. Um, in their March 8th letter to President Biden calling on him to establish an Office of Sexual and Reproductive Health within the Domestic Policy Council, the National Birth Equity Collaborative stated that the gravest effect of our broken system is persistent inequity, which denies people of color, people in rural communities, people with disabilities, and people of low income without autonomy to determine their reproductive futures, and therefore the array of health and economic decisions key to their lives. So to end, I'm not asking for much, right? Just
just reproductive justice for developmentally disabled women of color, healthcare jobs for women with disabilities, Nidler funding, and data. That's it. I'm not very hard to please. <laughs> Centene is just scratching the surface with some of the things we're doing to improve access to preventative healthcare for duly eligible women with disabilities. But thank you for letting me share some of those things with you. And I look forward to hearing your ideas on how we can advance them even further together. Thank you for listening. This podcast is presented by the Lewin Group and is supported through the Medicare Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to helping beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes the full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about current efforts and resources, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care. You can also find resources for integrated care on LinkedIn to stay up to date with our recent products and technical assistance.